This is a Federal News Network podcast. Looking to settle debts to the IRS without an endless wait over the phone? Well, there's a bot for that now. Yes, indeed, the IRS is now automating more of its call volume through automation. And that's supposed to give its call center employees more time to address complex requests that come in from taxpayers. The IRS is also rounding the corner on its pandemic-era backlog of tax returns and paper. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. Jory, let's start with those bots. What do they do and how do they work? The bots, more than anything else, allow the IRS to triage its call volume, which has just been something it's been unable to get on top of for so long. And what it's specifically able to do is give taxpayers who owe the IRS less than $25,000, which is the vast majority of outstanding debts to the IRS, they're able to call a voice bot over the phone and entirely through this automation, they can set up a payment plan as long as it meets the relevant statutes. And that is the end of the conversation. There's no IRS enforcement officer knocking on their door. There's no follow-ups on the mail or the phone. That is the end of it. And they're able to go on with their lives. So the bot then is a synthesized voice on the other end that can has the intelligence behind it to, to rectify whatever the issue is. Yeah, it's a AI-powered software that gives a voice and is also to recognize a voice over the phone. And have you heard the voice? How does it sound? Who is it? Is it a man, Uh, a woman, or what? (laughs) You know, the IRS did provide some audio clips of this, and it's uh, no different than like a Siri voice on your phone. What about when you need to get through to the IRS for an actual person? Well, that's kind of the beauty of this initiative here is that for the people who do owe these debts, they're able to do this and have no weight over the phone. And that frees up those phone lines for the people who have more complex cases that require a human in the loop to uh, get the right people in touch and resolve that issue. And there are legitimately people who do need to get through to a human. And so this this is more important now than ever, considering that the latest numbers that we have here is that the IRS for this most recent filing season answered about three out of every 10 calls. That is Yikes. a low point. That is a low point in a series of low points for the IRS. The level of phone service was bad before the pandemic, and it's only gotten worse since then. So you might get a bot, but you'll get your business done and nobody's listening in. And how did they roll this out? What did it take to do that? Yeah, this definitely didn't happen overnight. The IRS started with a pilot that started in last December, and that involved launching bots that could handle more basic requests, such as if a taxpayer wanted help figuring out how to do a one-time payment uh, and things that didn't require the taxpayer to verify their identity over the phone. That's a big piece of this. And through that pilot stage, again, from last December to the end of this May, the IRS was able to handle 3 million calls. So that gives you a sense of the volume here of what these bots can do. And do they plan then to make this a permanent, regular part of dealing with IRS? Oh, yeah, very much so. And that there's big things in the future here being worked out. The IRS did work with National Taxpayer Advocate Erin Collins on this rollout. She did say, hey, it's great that taxpayers can set their own price, but wanted some 
controls in there to make sure that taxpayers weren't setting a price that was something they actually weren't able to afford in the long term. So that's something that they've baked into this. And as far as the future, they're looking at other services that, that these bots can provide, such as providing taxpayers with a transcript of their account and a balance of what they still owe. Got it. So, yeah, so they're really getting into the 21st century finally in CX and in just basic technology to get the work done. Yeah, they're really catching up and trying to provide a level of service that you might experience at your bank or something like that. All right. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And tell us more about the paper backlog that piled up, I guess, mail coming into the IRS when nobody was there at their processing centers and they had millions and millions of pieces of paper. What's going on there? Yeah, the IRS really started this filing season this year, knocked back on its heels. And this is the IRS slowly but surely catching its breath after a very busy year. As of June 10th this year, the IRS processed more than 4.5 million of the 4.7 million individual paper tax returns received in 2021, so last calendar year. Meanwhile, the IRS is still trying to deal with the volume of tax returns received this year. The IRS has dealt with 143 million returns that they received this filing season and issued about $300 billion in refunds. So to give you some context here, the current backlog of what needs to get processed at the IRS, it's more than twice what it would have for a typical year. But at the same time, the IRS has processed nearly a million more tax returns at this point in the year than it would in a typical year. This is, of course, not being a typical year for the agency. And from what you're reporting, it looks like the IRS's budget will reflect congressional, I guess, satisfaction with the direction the agency is going. Well, I think there's a recognition from Congress that you get the level of service that you pay for. And what they've been doing is incrementally giving the agency a higher budget. The plan for fiscal 2023 is still super preliminary. So take all of this with a grain of salt. But the House Appropriations Committee is proposing giving the IRS a $1 billion increase to its top line budget. That would be $13.6 billion overall. And for some context here, for fiscal 2022, Congress, as a done deal, already gave the agency its biggest funding increase in decades since 2001. They can buy a lot of bots with that kind of increase. They sure can. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out all of his reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. 
And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. 
And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature. Looking to expand or move your company? Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit successinohio.com today.